We've been in the book of Romans for um, some time. We're going to be out of the book of Romans by the end of this month. Um, you say, wow, there's still a couple chapters left there, Tim. What are you going to do? So, um, but we're, we're just going to spend the next uh, three weeks, including this week, finishing the book of Romans, and then we'll enter into a new series for summer, the first weekend of June. So, just so you know. Romans has been good, though. It's been very, very good. But I do have to be honest, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 1 through 2 says this. This is the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray together. Would you just take a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you as we open up his word? Maybe just say, come Holy Spirit. And if you would, just take a moment to pray for me. Pray that the Spirit would use me and speak through me this morning. Well, Father, we love you. We trust you. Use this time. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the honking in New York City has been incessant. Amen? Since the beginning of time, perhaps. But every morning, I stand outside of my school for arrival time and help students as they enter into school. And when our students get off the school bus, it usually takes a minute, right, because there's quite a few of them, and it ends up holding up traffic, you know, naturally, as school buses do. Everybody has gotten a little impatient behind a school bus, like, what in the world is going on? Why are there kids on the bus getting off the bus, right? There's this impatience. I cannot begin to tell you how many people honk at the school bus as kids are disembarking. Like, what in the world is going on? Like, what has the world come to that we're now honking at school buses, right? But it seems like impatience is growing at an alarming rate. Uh, even more so, not a school bus example, but the other day, this mom was dropping off her kids, and she had driven in front of school, and I mean, she was moving pretty quick, all right, to get everyone out of the car. It was like, go, 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 out of the car, as most of our parents do, right? But it, it, it does hold up traffic a smidge. Um, she must have taken all of 30 seconds. She was quick, the truck behind her laid into the horn. Two fellas just couldn't be more upset, this mom, with three kids, as she was kissing her kids goodbye. And many of us on the curb were just kind of like, seriously? Be nice. The mom came up to me later, and she said um, a few blocks down, the truck sort of swung up next to her, and uh, the guys were jawing at her from the truck. Well, this mom uh, has her little one in the back, and her little one, at this point that the truck drives up, he, he goes, give it to him, mom. <laughs> and, and while I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure she really wanted to give them a piece of her mind. She made the conscious choice to not give it to them at that moment, even though these guys were being total jerks um, and totally deserved it. 
Why? Well, she wants to, all right? Let's be very clear. She, was, she definitely wanted to, but she was so mindful of her conduct in that, moment, in that moment. Mindful of what her little one would witness. Mindful of, of how a conflict might escalate if she gets into uh, this sort of altercation or gives into the desire to give those idiots a piece of her mind. She's careful and mindful, thoughtfully considering what really matters and what might even happen next. An incredible example to her little one and probably a different example than what would have happened if it had been their dad. Probably would have gotten out of the car. <laughs> An incredible example to her little one. An incredible example to us in how frameworks guide our conduct, even in simple, everyday situations. And for me, when I was reflecting on this, I'm, I'm grateful to have grown up in a home where my mom uh, did the same thing. She taught me valuable lessons, not by being perfect or always having it together, for sure not, but by being an individual who held a framework that guided her conduct. And in her raising three sons, she held a framework, a framework that guided her conduct. In her loving my dad, she held a framework that guided her conduct. In her selfless generosity and time, talents, and ties, she held a framework that guided her conduct. And all along the way, there were three boys and countless of others who saw her and my dad collectively as a family hold a framework that guided their conduct. Do you know what the framework was? It wasn't get out of the car every time somebody yells at you and beat them up. Right, it was a Romans 12 kind of framework that you've been saved by grace. Don't ever forget this. And so live in a forever reprise of praise to the one that gave it to you and extend his grace to everyone around you. Something moms are really good at. This is precisely what Paul is saying throughout Romans 12 through chapter 16. That now that you, as the body of Christ, are grafted in together into this one olive tree, it's time for you to see yourself as one body striving together to live under that framework. A forever reprise of praise. And the only way that you're able to do that is through your living, through your daily conduct. You have control over how you live. Your free will, Paul would say, means that your conduct is actually something in this world that is out of control that you have control over. That could feel scary and weighty, but it's true. And we sort of feel that fear and weight when we hear Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when the Apostle Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But all Paul is doing is presenting a framework that Christ has already provided for us, which is, you have been saved by grace... Don't ever forget this. And so live in a forever reprise of praise to the one that gave it to you. And then extend his grace to everyone around you. But what does this really mean? Verse 2 is complicated and it, it kind of also hurts. It's like not our natural default, right? It's like, what in the world does this really mean? What does this really look like? Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question because I think Scripture tells us, I think Christ tells us, I think Paul tells us 
So we're going to dissect verse 2 and then have it illuminate to us the rest of Romans 12 and then part of Romans 13, as we'll see next week. But you see, Paul gives three imperatives in verse 2. That would be great to notate in, scripture, in, in your Bible if you'd like to. Right? First, he says, do not be conformed to this world. That's imperative number one. Second imperative is be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the third imperative is discern what is the will of God. Easy. That's easy. Oh, I got that. That's no AP test. No stress there. I can do that. Three imperatives? Yeah, let's go. All right, so let's take a look at them. First, do not be conformed to this world. Remember, easy. I don't know. It's a calling of nonconformity. When everything within me wants to conform to something, Yikes, not so easy. This calling of nonconformity has been a root calling throughout all scripture, though, which is really remarkable. We're going to look at two examples, right? One from the old and one from the new. All right, let's look at the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Leviticus. We're going to look at Leviticus chapter 18. And how in Leviticus, probably the, the, the book that most of us, when we come to Leviticus in our Bible reading plans, like the year reading plan that we start in January, like, I'm going to do it this year. You get to Leviticus and you're just like, I don't have the perseverance to get through this. I'm going to skip on through all the way to Matthew. <laughs> that sounds great. It can be so nuanced. There's some weird stuff in there. And it can be difficult to understand, but so, so incredibly worth it, all right? Leviticus is a fascinating book. And to be clear, in the book of Levit Leviticus, things are a bit complicated. The Israelites are tired and weary. And things get complicated when we're tired and weary. They'd experienced the victory of leaving Egypt, but now are seemingly getting further and further away from the place that the Lord promised to deliver them to. Have you ever been there before? Right? That's, that's yeah, welcome to life. And he seems to be getting lost. The divine is lost. We were supposed to go north, and instead this whole caravan is going south. And in the midst of this, God has a series of conversations with Moses because he's a relational God and he's chosen this leader, Moses, that he's relating with. And God is giving a very clear and thorough framework and structure on how they're supposed to live. And in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, God speaks to Moses and says this. It says, speak to the people of Israel. Say to them, I am the Lord your God. I'm glad that he doesn't shy away from that. He makes it clear from the get-go who he is. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. This is set-apart language, right? You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Now look at what he says again. Don't forget, I am the Lord. So why should we do this? Why should we ascribe to the way of living that God places in our lives and before us? Why do we take his path and not other paths? Well, God says, because I am God. I think most of us hate that answer. Why should I do it, mom? 
Because I'm mom. Why should I, why, why shouldn't I do it? Why should I do it? What? Because I'm dad. Because I said so. Well, to be clear, I think when we first hear this, this, this comment of because I'm the Lord, it's actually not God saying because I said so. He's actually revealing something really remarkable to us, which is that he's God. Well, if he is God, then yeah, you probably do want to listen to him. I think he created you. I think that he's in charge. I think that every molecule on earth is in his hands. So it's a little different than because I said so. That's interesting. God says, I know what's best for you. Trust my ways, trust my timing, trust my framework for living. Don't be conformed to the ways of this world. Instead, be conformed to my ways. Why? Trust me. My ways will give you life and provide for you the greatest enjoyment of the world. And this is radical. Because automatically your flesh said, I can think of a hundred more. And they all fail in comparison. And what's really radical is the first thing that is uh, shared after God tells Moses this is, is actually a paradigm for our sex life. In other words, the sexual pleasure people in this world are seeking and live for, right? He sort of shares this paradigm around this, right? Basically, our physical pleasures, which are the ones that vie for our attentions and affections probably more than any others, right? It's so interesting because the people just can't quite comprehend or understand is that it's, it's not more pleasurable to do these things than to be in a right relationship with God, and God says all of these things, these pleasures of the world, they're actually not more pleasurable than being in a relationship with me, knowing me, being one with me. There's no worldly act, it says in Leviticus, there is no worldly love that's better than me, for I am the Lord. So there is this clear calling to not be conformed to the ways of the world. Essentially what is said is, sex will be a bad master, your spouse will be a bad master. Ma master. Bowster? I don't know what that is. Master. Any of the pleasures in life, your work and the money that you gain from your work will be a bad master. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can master you in a way where you experience enjoyment like God. There is nothing. And so there's this incredible paradigm. So we let this serve as an example for anything within this world. It's to be enjoyed within the confines of God's framework. That includes sex, that includes work, that includes money, that includes all of our relationships. We have to put it underneath the confines of God's authority and framework. He designed it. So let's allow him the opportunity to tell us how to use it properly. Imagine that. That would be like uh, taking a look at a bicycle and the guy who invented it. You're the first one who's ever seen a bicycle and you're like, I don't need you to tell me how this contraption works. That's ridiculous. And so what's true is that the goal was to be transformed then into the image of Christ so that we can actually use the things that God has given to us that are good, that are perfect, that are acceptable and use them rightly. And that's what we call Christ-likeness, right? That even then, even in this point of Leviticus, even though they didn't know Christ, God was shaping them and forming them into the image of Christ. And this image is wholly different than the image of the world. 
For the whole point of the law, the whole point of Leviticus is to show and reveal who? Christ. All right, so let's go to Christ, the New Testament. Jesus preaches the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, all right? You'll still think that after this one, I promise you, okay? It's the Sermon on the Mount. And he's speaking to his disciples about this whole do not be conformed thing. And Jesus is going to teach them the very basic spiritual discipline of prayer. And he says in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then he says this, very importantly, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Do not be like them. In other words, do not be conformed to their way of religion and piety, for it's not right. It's not for your best, and it's not for my glory. Instead, be conformed to my ways. Now, that's what got him crucified. That's a transformation. A total transformation that takes place, a, a transformation away from the ways of the world and into the image of Christ, into Christ-likeness. Now, what's true is, the goal of believers is to be like Christ. Not to be this awesome religious person. By the way, that doesn't always sit in New York City because people are like, why would you want to do that anyways? <laughs> Plays in the South, for sure, where I grew up. It's not a bad thing about the South. I'm just saying it plays in the South. In the North, it's a little bit different, but it's pretty similar. Why would you conform to the ways of the culture and the society and the religions of the society, because everybody's got religion. Why would you conform to the religions of the society? New York City has its religions, and we so easily default into those religions. The religion of, let me work 100 hours this week. Guilty, right? That's bad religion. Bad religion. Let me conform to the piety of doing what I think other people deem acceptable. That sucks. Don't do it. It's not good for you, right? It's not good for you. And so what's crazy is that the goal of believers is to be like Christ. Imagine if the church in New York City and throughout the United States actually was like Christ. Imagine if just the people who said that they know him and love him actually were like him. Gosh, there would be a different place. It'd be a different world. People in New York City, people who don't know Jesus at all would be like, yeah, I'd kind of want to know a little bit more about that because they see the goodness of Christ in you. But yet, we get so sidetracked with our own religions, and it doesn't just have to be Christian religion. Now, sushimatizo is a word that's used here, okay? It's a Greek word. Um, by the way, it doesn't sound Greek. Um, it's used here, and it means having the same shape. And this is where Paul's calling comes in to us. He says, for you are not meant to be shaped by the world. By the way, religion is worldly. Not to be shaped by the world, you were meant to be shaped by the word, and the word is Christ. So friends, don't assume the form of the world. Don't assume it. Don't put it on. 
Instead, assume the form of Christ. That's the calling for the church. That's the calling for Christians globally. Be like Christ. Now, there's an external putting on Christ then that takes place. And what Paul does next is he moves in to the second part, which is be transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is what's taking place internally. So we kind of move from external. It's kind of external and internal, but we move from external to the internal. And Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the emphasis here is on metamorphosis or change. And what's interesting is that Paul commands, do not conform to the patterns and ways of the world. Don't be transformed into the way of thinking and the way of doing of the world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. An internal change, a metamorphosis of the mind, an implied metamorphosis of your heart. And this naturally would be our hope after reading Romans 1 through 11 and studying it, that our hearts would have changed that our hearts would have been transformed after looking at all of this theology. But what happens and is a problem in the church, a problem of me, Tim Goodwin, is that we read 1 through 11 and we say, that's it. And we don't then move into 12 through 16, which is all about conduct. And actually using the theology and putting it into action where you become like Christ. Because this is the part, 12 through 16, that is so unbelievably uncomfortable because it requires you to do something and not just think something. It's crazy hard. And so, one of the most interesting creatures, I think, that I think can help us with this, is the chameleon. You guys know about chameleons? Of course you do, surely. You've maybe seen some chameleons. It's interesting because a lot of people think that chameleons can just sort of change color at any point and immediately go into a camouflage, which, by the way, is phenomenal. That would be so cool, right? But it's actually not true. I can't do that. They actually, what they do instead, they just sort of decide to blend into any background or pattern. They can't just say, yep, I'm going to blend into that. They can't do that. Um, but what they can do, all right, is they can make subtle, small adjustments, okay, in their color to adjust to their environment, which is super cool, all right? For example, they can turn a darker shade of gray or brown when light is lacking, making it seem as if they blend right into the concrete. They can also make more extreme color changes when they're competing with one another or challenging another for mating. Sounds like the humans. Um, when they change color, it's not for the lack of communication, though. That's what's so wild. A lot of people who are quiet in nature might even say, and you've probably heard this, right, I'm a chameleon, right? And actually, that would be uh, not necessarily analogous, okay, or analogous, right? But instead, they change color to communicate. They communicate to those around them. And I think we as a people resonate more with this understanding of chameleons because the reality is this, is that we as a people, regardless of what your Enneagram number is, okay, are constantly making small adjustments to communicate with other people. Whether it's because we want greater acceptance or greater approval or we're simply out there trying to find our mates or our community, we make small adjustments to communicate. The question is, are the adjustments we are making being made for our good or for the perceived good of others or even ourselves? Because in reality, if we live like chameleons, we're just sort of changing for the sake of others or changing for the sake of ourselves, making adjustments so that others might feel comfortable and not because the adjustment is actually a good one. And that kind of sucks because it's not really who you are. 
But yet our culture and even ourselves demand this of us. Metamorphosis for the sake of acceptance. Ugh. And even out of our own distortion of good, we press and press and press on ourselves to conform to something, some image that we think is right or good for ourselves, and not even thinking about what it is that our Creator thinks about us. What's fascinating about the gospel is that God doesn't ask you to make small adjustments. For when you accept the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, grace is actually poured into your heart and life. And then God himself dwells within you with his power, his might, his wisdom, his understanding. And guess what that does? It changes you from the inside out and completes a total metamorphosis, which we would call being renewed into who you were created to be. That's cool. Way better than chameleons. All right? And the metamorphosis that takes place has nothing to do, hear me about this, okay? Has nothing to do with your adjustments, with your work, but everything to do with the work that is being done in you by God himself, not by you. And if we live our lives constantly trying to make small adjustments to find acceptance and fulfillment, we will slowly kill ourselves. But if we live our lives with the framework that I've been saved by grace, don't ever forget this, Tim Goodwin. And so live in a forever reprise of praise to the one that gave it to me and extend that grace to everyone around me. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? I would be such, so much more fun to be around. Can you imagine what that would do to me? Not too many loud amens, okay, all right? Be careful with my heart. But what would that do to others? Well, Paul does, in fact, share with us a vision of what this looks like. In Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, Paul gives us the beautiful image of what this framework actually looks like played out. He says this, beginning in verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Wow. Sober judgment. I'm not even sure I know what that looks like. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members. Amen. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, amen, let us use them, amen. (laughs) If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, what does Paul do? He says, this is living. Not in a way where you are making small adjustments to conform to the culture or to conform to the religiosity and piety of the day, but you're living out the transformation that is taking place in your life because, solely because, the Spirit is at work in you. And this is for our good. And this is freeing. Verse 6 is remarkable. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The church. A collection of instruments in the Redeemer's hands. 
with different giftings, different preferences, mm -hmm. lots of preferences, different passions, different convictions, all at work in the same Redeemer's hands. And they all operate with the same framework. The framework of, you have been saved by grace. Don't ever forget this. And so live in a forever reprise of praise to the one that gave it to you and extend his grace to everyone around you. And that, the, 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 the emphasis that Paul adds, right, which is really remarkable to this is, do this, yes, do this, but do it together. Third, Paul tells us and proclaims, discern what is the will of God. I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? Can somebody please just go ahead? Anybody want to just share a definition of the will of God? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. The will of God. Okay. The great mystery for humanity. To search, to know, Paul says. Well, what are we searching? What are we trying to know? Well, what is it going to be? And for Christians, there are probably very, very few theological items that cause such anxiety, strife, and frustration as saying, are you doing the will of God? And I remember as a kid being told to seek the will of God and not having any idea what in the world that meant. Like, where is it? Like, how do I find it? Will there be neon signs telling me about it? And how wrong my immature mind was to think about a, such a, a, a precious thing in that kind of way that there might be neon signs telling me where it is. But one of the deepest, most profound issues I faced and still face today is how, when we talk about the will of God, how unbelievably dirty I feel when I think about how I've done in the whole race of doing it that I fail so much because I've been chasing my whole entire life for a formula that will equate in the will of God as if I'm some sort of crusader on a quest for the Holy Grail. And what's wild is that for 29 years, I've not found the Holy Grail. I will in fact have gotten no closer to it than when I was five trying to obtain the will of God because what's true is that it's not a thing to obtain. For the will of God is not a thing to obtain, for it's not even spoken like that. The Apostle Paul says something so freeing and good news for us is that Paul says this. He says, it is something that you seek out. You discover. Not something that you're like, got it, all right, what's next? That's cool. Paul doesn't say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may obtain the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's not the point. But yet, in our Western mindset, our consumeristic mindset, we're like, how much can I buy it for? And he says, no. Discern. So not something to obtain, but something to actually seek out, to know, to get acclimated with, to study, to test, to really wrestle with, to really get at. And in the end, it's worth it because the will of God, Paul says, is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now there's this other Greek word called dokomazo or dokimazo, 
Um, my professor would be so mad at me um, from seminary. He'd be like, you're so terrible at pronouncing things. But this verb that, or, or, or word that Paul uses means to discern. It, it, it means to analyze, to like really press into it and like, like squeeze it for all it's worth. Like what does this mean and how, does, like, how can I get more and more of it? to put my full senses engaged in this journey of like understanding it and grappling with it and trying to figure it out. And what's amazing, what's remarkable is that God provides the space for us to do that. How often do we feel in the church that we have to have it all figured out? That I don't have space to analyze it because I need to come up with the quick question so people don't think that I'm not a Christian. That's bogus. What's amazing is he doesn't put a time frame on it because the analyzing, the pressing, the feeling, the seeing, the the discerning when, when done in relationship with him is really the whole point because it's done with him. So how is it that our minds are renewed so we can do this? That's what I would like to know. And Paul says fully by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is renewing even now every single part of our humanness which has been tainted and twisted since the fall. And this includes, definitely includes, our mind. And the Spirit, as he's doing this, leads us to his word, which the scriptures tell us is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Scripture is the objective revelation of God's will. What is God doing? Scripture tells us exactly what he's up to. And you can bring all your frustrations and confusion around scripture, but it doesn't taint and distort whether or not God is doing something. He's at work. So you ready for this? What is God's will? Well, I don't have an exact answer for you. Oh, sorry. But here's how I would frame it. Is this helpful? Okay. I would frame it like this, and I think that, the, that, that Paul would agree here, because I think it's really Jesus who said this. It's the renewal of all things. That's God's will. To renew all things, to restore every single thing that's broken, and make it whole and complete again. That's God's will. So, When we say that God's will is for all people to know Jesus and to be in right relationship with him, it fits into God is renewing all things. When God is restoring broken relationships between a mom and a daughter, God is renewing all things. When God at the end, right, somebody somebody who does not know him has lived their entire life without knowing him, but then at the end just decides, you know what, I cannot believe it. My eyes have been opened. I'm awakened to the reality that God is real. God is like, welcome, child. I mean, for the, the sinners on the cross, when, when all everybody was like, well, surely they won't be in the kingdom. And Jesus, with this dude, this criminal, he's like, welcome to paradise with me, brother. I mean, it's remarkable that God is renewing all things in his way, his timing, and our constructs, our religious and pious constructs around this, they get totally obliterated by the will of God. For God's will is for all things to be renewed, to be restored, and you have no idea what that looks like, and I have no idea what that looks like, except we get beautiful glimpses of it 
Beautiful glimpses, but the fullness I am not worthy enough to see because my mind cannot wrap its mind around that reality that God is renewing and restoring. For the brokenness is so big, so immense, so distorted, but yet God is renewing it. And God's will is that we, his people, who have received grace, would then be a part of renewing all things with him. And so God's will is for you to join him. That's amazing. So then how do we do the will of God? Don't forsake the framework. And that's not a call for you to be perfect. That's not a call for you to be very meritorious and and being able to do everything right. No, this is to, to see things rightly, which is you have been saved by grace. Don't ever forget this. And so live in a forever reprise of praise to the one that gave it to you and extend his grace to everyone around you. And the emphasis that Paul adds is that you do this. Yes, you do this, but you do this together. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. He says this. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Can you imagine? (laughs) Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What is this? What is this madness? It's Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. And you do it together. There was an opinion column in the New York Times that I found interesting. They're not all interesting, by the way. Uh, called Five Lies Our Culture Tells by a columnist named David Brooks. He wrote this back on April 15th, 2019. Oh boy, did he not know what was coming, right? He said back in 2019, he said, four years ago, in the midst of the Obama presidency, I published a book called The Road to Character. I definitely wouldn't read that book, by the way. I don't think that I, I would have picked that up off the shelves. That sounds very, I'm not sure. But anyways, he says, excuse me, forgive me. He says, American culture seemed to be in decent shape. And my focus was on how individuals can deepen their inner lives. That's good. This week in the midst of the Trump presidency, I've got another book. It's called The Second Mountain. It's become clear in the interim that things are not in good shape. That our problems are societal. The whole country is going through some sort of spiritual and emotional crisis. 
College mental health facilities are swamped. Suicide rates are spiking. The president's repulsive behavior is tolerated or even celebrated by tens of millions of Americans. At the root of it all is the following problem. We've created a culture based on lies. Now you can see that David here has a particular political leaning in his words, right? Fascinating, though, that he says, things were going smoothly, but now, whoa, what happened? Now we have a culture based on lies? Dude, Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> but listen, here are some of the lies he says. Career success is fulfilling. Lie. I can make myself happy. Lie. Life is an individual journey. Lie. You have to find your own truth. Lie. The New York Times. Okay. Rich and successful people are worth more than poorer and less successful people. Lie. When discussing the finding your own truth lie, here's what he says. Everybody chooses his or her own values. Come up with your own answers to life's ultimate questions. You do you. And he says, the problem with this is, and we would agree that this is a problem. He says, the problem is that unless your name is Aristotle, you probably can't do it. Most of us, most of us wind up with a few vague moral feelings, but no moral clarity or sense of purpose. So he says, we need others. He later says, no wonder it's so hard to be a young adult today. No wonder our society is fragmenting. We've taken the lies of hyper-individualism and we've made them the unspoken assumptions that govern how we live. We talk a lot about the political revolution that's needed. The cultural revolution is more important. It's a pretty good opinion. David, I got something for you. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greatest cultural revolution the world will ever know. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. If you feel like you can't find good, there's a reason for that. If you feel like you can't find what is acceptable, there's a reason for that. If you feel like you cannot prove or find perfect, there's a reason for that. And the truth is this, we do need a revolution. And a revolution came when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And the revolution was this, that he would not stay dead, but would be alive so that you could experience life for eternity. David, I've got something for you. I've got something for you. And I wonder, I wonder what the response to that would be. You know, what's interesting is that this framework that I've shared with you, I'm kind of interested, and I think this is an important thing to do, is ask the question, did it work for Jesus? Was it his framework? Did he also live in a forever reprise of praise to the King of Kings? and extend the grace of God to everyone around him. Well, I believe um, that there is a collection of testimonies about that. I think we call that the New Testament. And um, he says to us in Luke 22, beginning in verse 32 through 38, he says this, or this is the story, the narrative. It says, Two others who are criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. 
and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said this, right? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. But what's incredible, it's like if you want to ask about this framework, what Jesus says in verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, is just an incredible reminder that his sights are set on one thing. One thing. The will of God. For it meant freedom for all. The renewal of all things. For you, for me. You've been saved by grace. Don't ever forget this. And so live in a forever reprise of praise to the one that gave it to you and extend his grace to everyone around you. And the emphasis that Paul adds is that you do this. Yes, you do this together. Let's pray. Well, Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. You love us so much that you would say, as you were dying, Jesus, you would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For it is true that here, as humans in this broken world, we are in the midst of an immense battle. Our flesh is vying so hard for worldly attention and affection. But yet our spirits cry out for restoration. And for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we know that restoration has come because you dwell within us. And you cannot dwell within something that is not holy. And so the baffling thing for those of, who, uh, of us who have experienced this is that we've been made holy. Now the temptation would be, God, the temptation would be that we say, oh, we're holy, so now we, we live in a way that is so haughty and arrogant because of this great thing that we found. We've been enlightened to this truth and so therefore we're better than everybody else. But instead, what you call us to is to be lowly, to humble ourselves, to deny ourselves and instead take up the cross. And so, Father, we collectively, we cast out all arrogance, all pride. All the things that we think are better than you, God, they are not better than you. And so we cast them out. We pray that you would you would prod and poke us abominably that it would hurt so much because you were doing a good work. I just think about C.S. Lewis' words that you're not just building us into a cottage, you're building us into a palace, into a mansion. And so that means you're throwing out new wings and it's gonna hurt. There's a lot of construction happening within Tim's heart, my heart, and so God, we, we just trust you. All of our hearts, there's so much construction happening and that construction is good, profitable, because it is for our good and for your glory. So Father, we trust you. We also just pray for those in this room that don't know you. We pray that they would know you. That your spirit would speak to them this morning. That they would see that they are your child. And that you want to restore them. And that their restoration is not the result of them having to try hard enough or be good enough. But their restoration is fully because of the grace that's been given to them. That was proclaimed and lustered on Calvary. So, Father, would you speak to them even now? Draw hearts to yourself. 
We thank you, Lord, for being with us in this place. Amen. We're going to move into a time of confession. If you'd like to to pray or bring anything to God before communion, please. Thank you for listening. We pray you are encouraged in your walk with God through this podcast. For more information about this church, please visit our website at gallerychurch.com.